If you are joining us for the first time, um, we go through the scripture on Wednesdays. We just go straight through from Genesis to Revelation, and we just pick up where we left off last week. And uh, as Rick was alluding to, Romans chapter 9 is probably not one that if I was just to teach a topical study and have any of my choices to pick in the scriptures, that would be the one. However, it's a very good chapter, and it tells us a lot about who God is, but it's a, it's a chapter full of meat, if you know what I mean. And... Um, we're going we're gonna to eat through this one here and try to um, understand it the best we can so we can walk out of here with an understanding of God. But first, I want to pray over the service. And will you join me? Father, I pray um, that you would speak in and through me about this chapter. Um, and, and Lord, and I'll, I've prepared my notes, but Lord, I still want the I'm just the freedom of the spirit to move at the same time. And, um, and so I would be just to be obedient to you all throughout this message. And I would pray that the hearts and the ears um, of our fellow believers here would be open to your truth and that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 9 is a, um, it's right in the middle of, the, of this amazing, amazing letter that Paul has written that really has just a wonderful understanding and a foundation for us as a church and for all the churches to understand who God is and the theology of God. And I was trying to figure out, okay, if I were to give an analogy or an explanation of understanding Romans chapter 9, what would I say and how would I say it? And I just felt led um, as I was praying that, to go t- to Jesus' words himself and not try to come up with an analogy or an example to make it a little bit easier to understand. And so before we get into Romans chapter 9, would you turn to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. And you'll know the title when I say it if you're well-versed in the scripture. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus is speaking to his Pharisees, scribes, and his disciples, and he's going to give a teaching. And this parable really describes Romans chapter 9 in a sense. And so let me read it. Jesus says, For the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is like a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the landowner obviously would be God. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. So, and again, he went out in about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you'll receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, 
beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have been borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered, so the landowner answers one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Now check this out, listen. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is a situation that if you were to take this right here, this kingdom of God teaching, and you put it into the church in Paul's day, this was happening. These Jews who have been walking with the Lord, their ancestors have been walking with the Lord, all their promises and everything, and God had promised them. He had made a covenant with them. They were to get what they deserved, and they were a special people. And then here comes out of nowhere these Gentiles and they're getting the same blessings. And what we are having in the church is these Jews, in Paul's day when he was writing this letter, the Jews were just upset and frustrated about the whole Gentile situation that they're, they never even sought righteousness ever. They never have. And they would just give it to him when Jesus came. Here it is. And all the Jews have always sought after righteousness through the law, but the problem was they were doing it through works, and they got nothing for it. And so it caused a lot of friction within the church. And then you had the Gentile believers kind of like, well, I got all this freedom, and look at me. I didn't have to do anything, and I got this. It would rub the Jews the wrong way, and next thing you know, they're supposed to be together now. The churches were supposed to come together, the Jewish people and the Gentile people were to come together to worship God. And now you can understand now the context, what was happening. And I get that context from multiple passages of scripture. You can go to Acts, the book of Acts, and you can see the problem unfolding. Go to Acts chapter 15 if you want to take a good look at an example. Go to Corinthians. When we're talking about meat offered to idols and how we're stumbling our brothers who or the Jewish people and the Gentiles were just living however they wanted to live because they had this freedom and there was all this friction. But somehow or some way they were supposed to come together and worship. And that's the context of what the book of Romans was being written in. And so when Paul sends this letter to Rome, it's like the capital of the world. All roads lead to Rome and all roads lead out of Rome. And so the church there has a mixture of all types of people, and he has to give them the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of justification, and he really wants to drill home the sovereignty of God. And just like in this parable right here, God is sovereign. He can choose whatever he wills. He still wants to bless the first people that came out and worked all those hours, but doesn't he have the right to also bless the people that just came in? So in essence, God still wants to bless the Israelites, He wants them to be thankful 
that they have a job and he chose them to be laborers in the field for him. But you need to also be thankful for the people that came in at the 11th hour, the Gentile nations, and be thankful for them as well. So Romans chapter nine is going to address both Gentiles and Jews and how to be thankful. And at the end of the day, who are we to come to God and say anything because he's sovereign and he's good? Does that make sense? So when we enter into Romans 9, some people have a little bit of a tough time trying to understand it because they don't understand the context. So that's the context. So everybody turn to Romans chapter 9. And right out of the gate, Paul's going to let us know his emotions. Right out of the gate, he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. What do you think he's trying to get his point across, right? Listen to what I'm saying, and it's totally truth. What I'm trying to tell you right now, pay attention. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who was overall eternally blessed God, amen. Now, if you just read this real fast, you're gonna miss it. But Paul is extremely emotional here. Look at his words, guys. Look at the words that he's using to explain to his readers his anguish. It's not just sorrow, not just a little bit of pain and sadness. He uses the word great sorrow. And a continuing grief, he has a constant pain and a remorse over his own people because Paul is a Jew. And he's so upset by the fact that these people, his family, they're missing the boat on this one. And it's not, he's not flippantly just saying, well, whatever, you have the scriptures, and if you don't believe it, too bad. He wants to give over his right if he knew it would really work. He's, what he's, trying, to, he's trying to prove a point here that he just wished he was accursed just so they could be saved. Now, This is not the first time we heard somebody in the Bible do this. We see this, that Paul reflects the same heart Moses had in Exodus 20 or 32, 31 through 32. And it says, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin. I have made for themselves, they have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. He has the same heart as Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, right, the law, and he looks down, he's just like they're worshiping a a golden calf. And it just broke his heart and he goes to God and pleads with them, like just please don't punish these people. If, If you can blot me out of the book instead and save these people, please do. 
that was his heart. We also see it with Jesus. He's, he, Paul shows the heart of Jesus who was willing to be accursed on behalf of others. And so in Galatians 3.13, which is also authored by Paul, it says Christ hath, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. So Christ actually is the only one to be able to go and be a curse for someone so they can get out of trouble, so they can receive salvation. And that's the gospel. And only Christ can do that. Paul couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. But it's important that we have the heart of Jesus, the mind of Christ, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You have the mind of Christ. So that helps us understand the heartbeat of Paul, his emotions, his pain, and what he thinks and how much he loves his own people. And then he goes on and gives a list of, of benefits for just being these people. Now, watch in four and five. Let's look at it and break this thing apart, okay? He says, these people that I'm anguishing over, these Israelites, well, for one, they are a nation, a chosen nation, which they're called the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. These people have been adopted by God and they have seen the glory, it says, the glory. That's the Shekinah glory that we get in the Old Testament when they would set up the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory would come down into the Holy of Holies. They had the privilege of seeing that. No other nation had the privilege of seeing such a thing like that. And then God would actually make covenants with them. He would actually have a handshake and say, we will do this together. But what other nation has that, right? And then the giving of the law, he gave the Israelites the law so they could look at it and say, I'm in desperate need of a savior. The law, they were never to, to try to be righteous by abiding in it. They were to be righteous by looking at it and saying, I can't measure up to this thing. And they were given the privilege of having the law to look at and say, God, your grace has to be sufficient because I can't keep this. And by your grace alone, I'm going to be saved by your grace alone, you're gonna have mercy on me because I can't keep that law. But if you don't have the law, then it's like, well, what's right or wrong, right? And Paul said, I wouldn't even have known covetousness if it wasn't written that you shall not covet. So the law was very beneficial and the Jews, the Israelites had that. And they had the service to God and the promises. And then it goes on in five, of whom the fathers and from whom according to the flesh. So they have all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have David and Solomon. They have a lineage of people that God walked with that they could look back to. They have a heritage. They came from somebody. They came from people who are important. And then this, this tops the whole thing off right here. Christ came, who was over all, the eternally blessed God, amen. You guys know that there's not one verse in the Bible that has some, so much strength to declare Jesus as God as this one right here does. Underlined this verse right here. At least look down at it to make sure that you're paying attention. Because this is important. There is no verse in the Bible that's this strong that declares Christ as being God himself. If you want to look for, if somebody says, well, where do you get that Christ as God? Right there, Romans chapter nine, verse five. It says it right there. And what a privileged nation that the, 
The children of Israel were a part of this because God is saying, okay, you remember back in Genesis 3.15 when I said that there's going to be a seed that comes from a woman? And in that seed, he's going to crush the head of Satan. It's going to redeem what was lost in the garden. God himself is going to come in human flesh through a woman in the form of a seed. And God has chosen the nation of Israel amongst all the other nations to have that God, to have that seed come forth. Man, that's like bragging rights. And Paul is in bitter anguish, sorrows continually because they won't even read their own scriptures and they won't listen to him. He has this information, he's breaking it down for them and they would rather kill him than listen to him and believe in this truth. Now you guys, some, some of your parents as well, you know it's hard to watch your kids blow a bunch of blessings because they think they know what's best, right? And you're sitting there telling them, I've been through this a thousand times. I don't want to see you get hurt. I have the information to how to be a successful person in life if you would only do these things and stay in these boundaries. And this child keeps on, on his own free will saying, I get what you're saying. I can even see it in your own lifestyle, but I don't want it. I want to do what else I, I want to do what I want to do. And they just go and they run and they get in trouble and they blow the inheritance and they do whatever it is. And they're in anguish and they don't even realize it. And that's kind of how Paul is here. He's like that parent that just wants to see the children to succeed. And they just keep on blowing it over and over. And these children of Israel were absolutely blessed. They were chosen. And I need to say this before I move on. Why was the Israelites chosen to be the flag bearer of God? For what reason? Did they earn it? Did they do anything to deserve it? No, God chose them because he's sovereign and he can choose them to do that. He has the ability to do that. And we're gonna drill down into that a little bit more, but keep that in the back of your mind. And then in verse six, it says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your, she, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So verse six, a better way of saying it will be, would be possibly, well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? That's a question. That's what Paul would say to them. What, what's going on here? It's like, you Jews are like, what, what are you worried about? Are you thinking that, that God has failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? And he would say, of course not, because, but just because you are born an Israelite doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. Just because you belong to the family of Israel does not mean that you're saved. That's his point. So there must have been Jews there saying, I'm a Jew. So I'm good to go with God. I got the law. I got the privilege of being a Jew. We got the covenants. God made a covenant with the Jews. And he's going to completely tear that argument apart. But they were such a, they were a nation that was privileged. We read that in verses four and five. But salvation is not an association of a family. Salvation is a personal decision in God. 
And to us, it's like, well, no, duh, that seems to be simple. We kind of have that figured out, it seems like, in America. It's like, if you go out and you would say, are you a Christian, most people would say, no, I don't believe in that. Or yes, maybe my dad's a Christian, so I'm a Christian. But for the most part, there's a distinction. A a true follower of Christ, a born-again Christian, if I were to go out and say, are you a born-again Christian, a lot of people would say no, because they haven't made that personal decision. If I go over to Morocco... I'll ask anybody there, are you a Muslim? And they say, yes. I say, why? I was born a Muslim. That's what I am. I was born a Muslim. I have some Catholic friends. If I say to them, why are you a Catholic? They say, I was born a Catholic. And I came out of my mom's womb, I was Catholic. <laughs> but to us in the Protestant circle, it's just not an issue. We don't think that way. And this time to a Jew, I'm Jew. I'm good to go. I'm set, right? So in 10... He says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So now we have another situation going on here. First it was, if you know the, the story of Isaac and, or excuse me, Abraham and Sarah, she was barren, she couldn't have a child, and, but he was counted as righteous for believing God that he would be the father of many nations. Remember that story in Genesis? That's what made Abraham righteous, and Paul says that's what makes us righteous in Romans, that if we believe like Abraham believed in faith, then we're saved but it's not by our works. And so then here goes Abraham. He tries to, he takes that promise. God counts him as righteous. Then he looks and says, well, how is this going to happen? My wife's old, I'm old. And then Sarah's just like, here's my maidservant Hagar. Sleep with her, have a child. And he had Ishmael and he had the firstborn Ishmael. But that was not God's plan. In his sovereignty, that wasn't his plan. So mankind can say firstborn child doesn't always have the, they, they would like to say that they have the birthright, but they don't. Not in this plan right here, but God was like, my seed's going to go through Isaac, the younger. And again, you're like, well, what's the big deal? We'll go to a Muslim right now and they'll tell you it's a big deal. Because he's the firstborn child, Ishmael is. That's where they get their lineage from. Because he's the firstborn And we don't follow that path. We see this through Isaac because the scripture says this. But man, the Muslims have flipped it in the Quran. Instead of Isaac going to the altar, they picked Ishmael going to the altar. And then here is Abraham about ready to take out um, Ishmael. And God, Allah, stops him and says, don't do that. I counted you as righteous by not, by following through with this. I'm going to save your son. And there's a lamb that's sitting in the thicket. We have a ram in our Bible. In the Quran, it says a lamb. And because of this level of trust that I can put in you, I'm going to bless you by giving you another son, Isaac. That's how the Quran totally flipped that thing. And so it's important that we understand this. And when you're talking to a Muslim... I'm passionate about reaching Muslims. They have this thing and they've, Muhammad or whoever put the Quran together just kind of just discombobulated all the stories to fit how they want it. 
because of this birthright situations and things like that, and they totally missed it. And their whole lineage is through Ishmael, and ours is through Isaac. And so the Arab nations, and God said, I'll protect them, and they'll be a mighty nation and go out. And then, but the mighty nation, the one that Jesus is going to come through is through Isaac. Right there. And so let's get back into this. That was a rabbit trail I didn't plan to take. In verse 13, it says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And that troubles a lot of people. That troubles a lot of people. But when you break down the words in the Greek and and whatnot, actually in the Hebrew as well, it's that God favored Isaac over Esau. And so God went to to Rebekah and said, you have two, two little Two little guys in there, two little warriors in your belly. You're going to have twins, and they represent nations. And then she says, the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Again, flipping it. God is sovereign, and he can choose. He knows what's going to happen. He can choose. So they come out, and then Esau later on sells his birthright. Sells his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob becomes the heir. And then Jacob and Rebekah come up with some crazy scheme to lie to their aging, her husband, his father. And they completely mess the whole thing up. And it's just like the whole scene is messed up. Just lying going on all over the place. And people have a problem with God saying he hates Esau. And I'm having a problem trying to figure out, and I'm totally taking this off of Spurgeon. He says, I have a problem with God loving Jacob. I don't have so much a problem with him hating Esau. It's I have a problem with him loving Jacob because Jacob's really not much better than Esau. But God in his sovereignty and in his way, he's going to choose Jacob. And we'll see this and that becomes a whole line of issues going on throughout scripture because then it becomes the Edomites. Esau, the Edomites, that's the, that's the, the lineage of the children of Esau, is Edom. And they come against Israel later on and try to, to join in on Israel's enemies and then it really upsets God, and he speaks through a prophet named Obadiah, and he says, I'm going to completely wipe these people off the map. I'm going to pl- completely wipe them off the map because of who they are. He sees them. They were a nation, and they became a nation no longer. And in verse 14, it says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly Not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to, Pharaoh, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised up that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth." Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. And so here again, we have another example of we're not understanding it. And then Esau had a choice to obey Scripture and obey God and all these things. And God judged him for that. And chose Jacob. And then now here we have this issue of Pharaoh. And it raised him up and hardens his heart. But you have to go back into Exodus and read that. If you go back and they got the ten plagues. 
When God demonstrates his power and his glory through those 10 plagues and Pharaoh's at the, at the helm there in complete defiance, the first five plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The first five do. And then in the last five, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So we're trying to fi- figure out, like, does God just raise people up and just straight up condemn them right out of the gate without them even having a choice? I don't see that. I don't see that with Jacob and Esau. I don't see that here with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a choice. But God, in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, he's all-powerful. In every direction, he's more powerful than we can comprehend. In his omniscience, in his, that means that he's all-knowing. In every direction, he knows way more than we do. In his omnipresence, that means he's everywhere at all times. He can see things that we don't see. And we try to understand God and try to figure this thing out. And I'm sitting here looking at this, and he knew that what Pharaoh would do. He knew it. But at the same time, he gives Pharaoh the choice. And what we try to do is boil God down to try to understand this, this election and free will and whatnot. And we just, what we do is we dumb God down to the point where we can try to understand him, and he doesn't become omniscient anymore, omnipotent. We've, we we kind of create our own God. It's idolatry to satisfy us and to suit our own lifestyle. We create our own gods to suit our own lifestyle, and that's idolatry, and that's what we do. And I am totally fine with this right here, this, this understanding of God, that he has the ability to raise people up and put them in a position and knowing what they're going to do. And they make their own choice, and they have it, and then the God can come around and then harden their heart to where they, you just, they just give them, give them over to their sin. And there's a point of no return. Because I trust God. He's all good. He's just. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. He knows everything. He knows way more than I do. But I do know one thing. He says, if you stick close to Jesus, you don't have to worry about it. So if you're worried, like, am I, like, completely condemned by God because of my decisions? And I'm telling you, if you come in here today and you're just like, look, I am a total sinner and I need Jesus and I want to walk in, in Christ, you're saved. You're totally saved. You don't have to feel condemned. That was the point in Romans chapter 8 at the end. There's no condemnation in Christ. But we also see the argument in Romans chapter 1 with the sexually immoral people. God said, look, they keep on living this sexually immoral lifestyle. Eventually, I'm just going to give them over to it and they can have their way and go for it. He hardens their heart, essentially. So we see that, that argument in Romans chapter one. And if you're messing around in sin and you, hear, you know the truth and you keep doing it, watch out. You cannot continue in sin and just expect God's grace to be there. And he's saying that this is not compatible. It doesn't work. I gave Pharaoh five chances to see my glory and to give him grace. And then by the point of no return, it's just like, okay, bam, I'm gonna harden his heart. And then he's off and he's going to go to hell. You have to be careful with this. And I don't know when that point is. I don't know, but this is the teachings of the scripture. And God is sovereign. He knows. But if you're messing around in sin and you keep messing around in sin, you're defiant of the word of God. Please turn away from it. Please come back and turn away from that. And you can do that. He's great. He's long suffering and he's merciful. Experience it. In 19, it says, You will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? So be mindful that Paul's about ready to ask many rhetorical questions to drive his point home here. He isn't necessarily making theological statements, but trying to prove a point that we are so small in comparison with him, with God. We better think twice about judging God and trying to tell him what to do, lest we look foolish. So, and Paul asks a series of uh, six questions to drive this point home, starting in verse 19. He's just going to ask a bunch of questions so we can get an understanding of this. And so, yes, in verse 19 again, he says, what shall we say then? Why does he still find fault? Or who has resisted his will? Maybe a better a better way of saying that as well then, you might say, why does God blame people from not responding? Why is God blaming Pharaoh? If God raised up Pharaoh to harden his heart, to send him, to do his glory, to, to, to manifest his glory through Pharaoh and Pharaoh's defiance, um, how can you blame Pharaoh for not responding? So haven't they simply done away with the, 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 the option to choose. And then Paul's gonna refute that in verse 20. It says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And listen to this question. Let's look how he starts it out. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with, such, with much long suffering? the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Like, really what Paul's trying to boil it down to is, I get your argument, but who are you and who am I to come against God? He's so good to send his son to die for us, and then we're gonna try to put God in a corner and con convict him of something and we're not looking at all the goodness of God and his mercy and his grace and there's one thing that we don't like or not understand and so we're going to we're going to condemn God who are you he says it's crazy to think that and so he's trying to rebuff their argument these Jewish people's arguments is like yes you're the children of Israel but not all of you are going to be saved just because you're of this tribe doesn't mean that, that just gets you straight into heaven. But there's a remnant, there's a, there's, a, there's a chosen people who have chosen to follow me by faith, but then the whole plan from the beginning was all the nations would know me, and those nations represent Gentiles. The whole plan from the beginning that Israel would bear the flag and be a set-apart people to make God famous in all the nations. That was the whole plan, so the whole world would know him. That was the plan from the beginning. So why you being a Jew have a problem with Gentiles being saved? Who are you to come to God and say, why are these people being saved? They're getting paid the same amount of money 
when they only worked one hour as opposed to working all 12. Why? That's what that whole parable is all about. And he's just really trying to rebuff their argument here. And what he does is he proves it by quoting an Old Testament prophet, Hosea, I will call them my people. He's talking about the Gentiles. I'm going to call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. And then they shall be called the sons of the living God. From the Old Testament, this is just one of so many examples of God telling the, the Jewish people, guys, I'm going for the nations. I'm going for the Gentiles, even the worst of the worst, the Ninevites. That's the whole story of Jonah. I'm going to go to these people who you would equate to today as ISIS. I'm going to go to them and I, Jonah, I want you to proclaim the truth to them. He's like, no way. I can't stand those people. They don't deserve it. And he goes, you guys know the story of the well, spits him out on the, on the beach and he goes and he proclaims and essentially the gospel and they get saved and they repent and he gets all mad and he's sitting there and God sends a, a worm on mission to take his only shade out, that plant. <laughs> Crazy. And he gets all mad and God's like, why are you so upset? These people... Or my people, they're acting crazy, I get it, but I want to save these people. So who are you to judge who gets saved and not saved? Yes, they don't follow the law like you do, but I have a passion even for the craziest of people. I have a passion for them. And Jewish people, you had to understand that, and they wouldn't understand that. And then God is going to continue to teach them, and eventually he's just going to hand it over, and the Gentiles are going to go out into all the world and the nations. That's what we're seeing today. It's God's plan from the beginning. In 27, it says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Oh, he's going to put another prophet on him. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make, short, make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said it before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath, which means the Lord of the armies or the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. And that's Isaiah. And he's just like, and, and the Gentiles needed to see this as well. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And, and Israel was always to reflect God's grace. Regardless of what he'd do, his covenant was, is I, these will be my people until the end, till the very end. So there's a covenant there. So you Gentiles, you better be careful too to not get too prideful and arrogant because I'm going to graft you into that tree and I can take you right off that tree if you get too arrogant. That's what he's going to say later on in a couple more chapters from now. So yes, Gentiles, Jews, the Gentiles are supposed to be saved, but Gentiles, I have a plan for the nation of Israel and they're still a special people to me. So figure out how to get along. And then verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay a... In Zion, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
So God's plan from the beginning was to send his son into the world to save Gentiles, and he is using the nation of Israel to proclaim his name and set it all up, and in that seed, that Messiah was gonna come through through their nation. It was in the plan in the beginning, and they completely missed it, and that's why Paul is crying all the time, and he has such a heavy burden for his own people who are missing it. They're stumbling over Jesus. They're looking to the law for righteousness, and they're stumbling over Jesus. They're falling all over themselves, and they don't know it, and it's right there in the Scripture. It's right there in the Scripture. This was God's plan from the beginning. God knows us better than we know ourselves. That's what this tells me. God has a passion for people. He's grace-filled to the nth degree. He's so merciful. He's so kind. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's everywhere at one time. And he loved you so much, he sent his son for you. And it says right here, if you believe on him being Jesus you will not be put to shame. And on the flip side of that, if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll be put to shame. Don't kill the messenger on that one. <laughs> Seriously, this, this, is, this is truth. And this is what Paul was trying to get to the church and he's trying to get them to understand. And this is the same, I mean, with the same emphasis. It's just, this is the truth. And we have to understand this. There's shame without Christ. And if you don't have Christ, I'm telling you right now, you're missing the freedom. He knows what's best for you, and it's to walk in Christ and to know Christ because through Christ is the only way to have a personal relationship with your heavenly Father. And we're so sinful, we cannot even come close to earning our righteousness. There's no possible way because the law tells us that. Right out of the gate, you'll break the first one, you'll break the second one, and you'll go all the way to 10, and you'll bat a 1,000 on that one. You'll break them all. There's no possible way. We need Jesus to have that relationship, and we need Jesus to not have the shame. And so, yes, Jesus is our path to heaven. It's our path to relationship to God, but it's also our wisdom on this earth. He's everything. And if you're not satisfied, if you're depressed, and you're not walking in Christ, turn to Christ. He is the well that doesn't, it's bottomless. It continually gives water that will give you a drink for the rest of your life. You will never thirst again, he says. He's the bread of life. Every single day we, we take of Christ, and he's our bread of life. He sustains us. He gives us strength. That's Christ. And that was the plan from the beginning. And God wanted that so bad for us, and he wants us so much, he gave his most valuable possession for each one of us. And so some of you have heard this a thousand times, and yet you struggle with a thousand things that you shouldn't struggle with. Your list not getting done, and it causes anxiety and depression. You don't trust in tomorrow, and so you're trying to earn all the money today and all these things, and it's just like you're never gonna find your fulfillment in those things. Turn to Christ. The gospel is just not to get you into heaven. It's for every day. It's just not for heaven. It's for every single day to bring you freedom every single day. Whatever year you're struggling with, turn it over to him. And if you don't know Christ, that means you will never have a personal relationship with your heavenly father. And he says, 
I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. That was through Christ. That's what he said. So the way to get to the Father is through Christ. And you have to repent of your sins. And you have to turn your life over to Christ. And he will walk with you and in you. And so I pray that if you don't know Christ, that this is your day that you can just say, God, I'm done. I'm handing it all over. I'm a sinner. And only through Christ can I have righteousness. And so tonight we're going to pray. I'm going to pray um, over the elements here. We have communion, which represents Christ's body and his, and his shed blood for us. And we take that in remembrance of Christ and connect with him. Connect with him. And if you don't know Christ, please come down and talk to one of the pastors on, on the sides here, the ministry team on the side, and we'll guide you in the direction with that. And if you need prayer for anything else, please do. Come down. But be strengthened. God is a God who's faithful. He's, he's true to his covenant. And if you believe in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. You can wake up tomorrow and you're free. And you just follow in Christ. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we understand who you are in your nature. You are sovereign. You can do what you will, but we know your will is holy. It's just. It's good. And there's no sin in you. And so may we just turn the keys over and just hand them to you and that you form our worldview and you form our idea of how we should live and how we should think. And so Jesus, would you minister to those who don't know Christ and lift up those who do? And Lord, as we take this communion, would you just, um, just minister in that way through us as well as we remember you. So prepare us for worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.